there on this fine September day. I am Denver 7 traffic anchor Jason Luber, ready to dive into another great edition of the Driving You Crazy Podcast. I'm pedestrian advocate and Joseph Peters, and unlike Golden State Warriors star Kevin Durant, I do not manage separate Twitter accounts to respond to my trolls. I just do it in private while I'm crying to myself. You have trolls? I have a couple trolls. Do you really? That editorial about the Olympics, man, it was all trolls. I was expecting 80% negative feedback. It was more like 98%. I'm surprised because I, I, I thought you made some really good points. I did get a very nice email from uh, somebody who runs an Olympic website who said, great editorial. I lived in Colorado. I'd love for them to host it here. So that's one positive comment and about 78 negative ones. So, wow, that is really surprising. I, You know, some people are some people are loved and some people are antagonists and I... Guess I found my niche. Well, there you go. Very nicely done. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I just had. Um, I figured out I had three uh, Instagram accounts. Um, I decided <laughs> to delete two of them just because I can't handle having three Instagram accounts, and now I have just one. And I don't mind how many followers I had on the one big one, but they're all gone now. And um, now I have to start over. <laughs> That's fine. We'll get an Instagram graphic soon enough. Yeah. You can follow. What is it, Denver it, well, 7 Traffic? It's Denver 7 Traffic or Jason Luber Traffic Guy. Either you one. I, you'll, search, you'll, you'll search me there. Perfect. Anyway. Huge news, Joseph. Huge news. Could the Hyperloop be coming to Colorado? The Hyperloop. Hyperloop. Hyperloop 1 has announced 10 winning submissions in a long-running contest to find what it believes to be the best places to build the first Hyperloop tracks in the world. There were 10 teams across five countries, Mexico, India, United States, United Kingdom, and Canada. They were picked from the original 2,600 submissions, and the routes range in size from about 200 miles to nearly 700 miles. And those other routes here in the United States, there's three of them. There's the Chicago-Columbus-Pittsburgh route, Dallas-Laredo-Houston. That one might be in jeopardy with all the uh, flooding that they're dealing with down there. And Miami-Orlando. Also on the list are a couple of routes in India. Two in the UK that would one would go from Edinburgh to uh, London, the other Glasgow to Liverpool, and then one in Mexico, Mexico City to Guadalajara, and then the Toronto Montreal line in Canada. In addition to those winners, Hyperloop One announced that it's going to be performing a feasibility study with CDOT, our Colorado Department of Transportation, that examines transportation demand, economic benefits, proposed routes, and Potential strategies, regulatory environments, and alignment, blah, 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 blah. Shaylin Batt, he's the executive director of CDOT, and he said they're excited to have uh, a partner with Hyperloop in exploring the next steps of feasibility with this innovative technology, potentially transforming how Colorado moves, blah, 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 blah. So how did Rocky Mountain Hyperloop get to this point, Joseph? We will jump straight into the feasibility study instead of merely determining their commercial viability And that's what's the difference between the Colorado one and the other nine that are out there. From the start, it got a buy-in from the state government. And that really helped why Hyperloop is really interested in Colorado. Back in April, Hyperloop 1 invited 11 teams from around the country to show their their proposed routes at a global challenge event in Washington, D.C. So apparently few of the other groups that proposed a Hyperloop route to the company had any kind of government support and, and nothing like what the Rocky Mountain Group had uh, it going for them. That made a huge difference from the policy director for Hyperloop One. He said, quote, what Colorado is doing is turning ideas on paper into action, and that's the kind of leadership we need from other governments to make these projects a reality. Hyperloop One says it's going to commit meaningful business and engineering resources to work closely which each of the winning teams roused to determine their commercial viability. Now, many city officials and residents around the world want to believe so badly that a Hyperloop could solve their sometimes massive local transportation problems. After, after I saw the story on, on this website, I, I got a press release from CDOT, so I didn't read it from directly from them. I actually saw it somewhere else first. And then CDOT sends out their press release, as typical. They always send things out late. That And it had the Dateline of Los Angeles, which I thought was interesting, instead of Dateline Colorado or Dateline Denver. Anyway, so I mean, maybe they were out there meeting with the Hyperloop people. I do think there's a couple of test facilities. I think there's one in L.A., and then there's a second one in Las Vegas. So that may have been the reason why. So, uh, so 
the release went on to say that Hyperloop One and CDOT will enter into this public-private partnership that will begin a feasibility study that examines transportation demand, economic benefits, proposed routes, blah, 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 blah. Overall, CDOT is looking to get uh, into this, and, and they think they're going to be able to win the bid because they are so far ahead of the, uh, of the game, right? And they're looking at a project that's going to run along the front range from Cheyenne to Pueblo and up I-70 west of Denver to Vail, and here's what they're so they had this video all made, this really pretty video made, and this is what the video sounds like. Colorado, one of the few places whose name can just as easily refer to a state of mind as it does a destination. Perhaps no place exemplifies America's pioneering spirit and passion for adventure as the Rocky Mountain State. Our vivid landscapes are as vast as our ambition and thirst for discovery. Embracing innovation has always been imperative to Colorado's growth and success. Now, through Hyperloop, we stand at the precipice of innovation, one that will change both how we travel and how we move goods. Hyperloop presents an invaluable economic opportunity to redefine mobility between Colorado communities and enhance connectivity between the region's highly diverse economic industries. Hyperloop would connect some of the fastest growing regions in the nation to one of the busiest and most economically vibrant airports in the United States. This will create immense potential for not only shipping the high-value cargo entering and leaving Denver International Airport, but also attracting new industry. Working in tandem with other emerging transportation technologies, like CDOT's RoadX program, Hyperloop will deliver a next-generation era of intelligent mobility to individuals and businesses alike, resulting in radically improved commute times and vastly improved freight efficiency. Hyperloop would be four times faster than high-speed rail and 12 times faster than conventional rail or bus options. These travel time savings could dramatically shift the transportation mode of choice to Hyperloop, significantly reshaping travel patterns in the region and boosting our competitive edge. With thousands of available acres of flat, open land extending from Denver International Airport to Greeley, the Front Range of Colorado is perfectly suited to accommodate accelerated and efficient Hyperloop construction while minimizing environmental and infrastructure impacts. Colorado has a history of aligning its policies, resources, and regulations to ensure inventive transportation projects become a reality. Our approach of managing emerging technologies and transportation strategies through public-private partnerships has positioned Colorado as the standard bearer for bold innovation. With Hyperloop, Colorado stands ready to make an unprecedented leap forward into a new frontier of connectivity and mobility, one that promises to forever change how the world moves. Unfortunately, you can't see the video, but it's really pretty. It's, there's a lot of pretty uh, sights, and there's a lot of uh, pretty mountains, and there's people skiing, and it's, it's very Colorado-esque. And what was striking to me as I watched the video is that most of it, maybe 80% of the scenes were of the mountains. And of the of the pretty Colorado scenery and that sort of thing, and while, and while the mountains are what the state may be known for, they're great to look at. They're great to play in. Most of the people that live here, they live along the east side of the mountains. They're over here on the on the Front Range. Roughly seventy percent of the population is along the Front Range, and that's where the Hyperloop, for the most part, will be built. And that's a great thing. You put it where the people are, right? And and that's where it can do the most good. And then I saw the flood of tweets and comments on the, the news story that, that said how great it would be to get from Denver to Vail in 10 minutes. Just jump on this thing, and there you go. Sure, it'd be great if you go skiing. That's fine. I, I guess they'll have to have a separate ski car to transport all your gear up there while you go skiing. And, and I was thinking about how many people would actually use it in the summer. My initial thought was very few. I, I, I wouldn't think there would be a lot of demand for it. To go up to Vail or go up to Breckenridge uh, on, in, in the summer when, when you can't go skiing, right? But then on second thought, I've, I've been up there into some of the mountain towns during the summertime. And there are some things to do. You can hike along some of those. Like you go up to Beaver Creek. And, and you can hike along their little trails. Same thing in Vail. You could take your mountain bike. I don't know if you could fit a mountain bike in the Hyperloop. But you can take your, you put your, hi, you put your bike on the gondola and uh, off it goes. And then you can ride it down or ride on some of those trails. So I guess there are some things to do. But most of the people that are going up there, Joseph, most of the people, they're bringing their campers. They're bringing their ATVs. They're bringing their, uh, their, their hiking boots. I mean, they're doing stuff. They're going up there with their tents. I mean, they're, they're going to places that the Hyperloop can't go. Right. Unless there is some kind of infrastructure in place 
where, let's say there's a four-wheel drive Uber waiting for you at the Hyperloop that'll take you to a, a one of those destinations you want to go, and then maybe you have to arrange to pick you up later. But And then it comes down to cost. Right. That gets a big, big consideration. Now, now, let's say if I could get down, if it costs ten bucks, that's that's the sweet spot. If I can go down to Pueblo in ten minutes for ten bucks, I'm going to the state fair. If not, I'm not right. Yep. If I can get for let's say ten or fifteen dollars in ten minutes up to Cheyenne, I'll go to Frontier Days and I'll go see that. Right now, I'm not going to spend the two hours to drive up to Cheyenne and all the time that it takes to get up there and hang out and blah 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 blah. Uh, and and go up to Frontier Days. Uh, uh, go on skiing. If it costs me ten bucks to go up there, yeah, I'd love to do it. I, I'm concerned that it's not going to be that, that inexpensive. I would agree with that. What I will say is that if it is that inexpensive, or even close to that inexpensive, what you're really doing is you're opening up other urban areas that can then become a pipeline for workers who come into Denver, right? I mean, what, yes. you, what you're really looking at long term and what the play is for CDOT is that all of a sudden you can put. 500,000 people in Cheyenne or however many people you need to in Cheyenne and they have an easy way to get to Denver instead of clogging up the highways and you suddenly don't have this mass migration of people on the highways coming into Denver from Cheyenne. I mean, look at our friend Daryl who lives in Cheyenne right now. He makes, what, a 70-minute commute every day? All of a sudden, that's eight minutes? I would live in Cheyenne if that was an eight-minute commute. Well, all right. You bring up a good point. So now, because we have so many problems with getting folks to live up in the high country at an affordable cost, and, and most what I'm talking about are a lot of the laborers and the and the people that are up there uh, working for the resorts and cleaning in the hotel rooms and, and all the real lower labor jobs that there are available up in the mountains. But there aren't any really low-cost housing options up there either. So you're saying we could have a big low-cost housing area in Cheyenne where it costs basically nothing to buy land right now. You could build a huge compound of of rooms for people to live in, put them on the Hyperloop, and in half an hour or less, they're up there in Vail. Exactly. And then subsidize that cost to get them up and back. Yep. It probably would be cost a lot less. It would. Well, and then the other thing that I I always think of when I think of this is that it would be a really smart time to go invest in the Uber infrastructure of Vail. I mean, if you rented out cars to six people and you develop, started developing your fleet now, it's going to be a booming business, as you pointed out, if this Hyperloop is ever built, getting people from there to their destination. I mean, you're talking 10, 20-mile trips where it's not really effective to build bus routes to everything. Right. But it is effective to have a big, big old mass of private cars to get you from point A to point B. It's always that last mile that we talk about. That last mile or the first mile getting to the Hyperloop or getting from the Hyperloop. And when you go up into the mountains, especially in the summertime when the traffic counts up on I-70 are actually higher in the summer than they are in the winter. It just feels like it's longer in the wintertime because the resorts all close at a certain time, so everybody jumps on the road at a certain time. And the weather obviously plays a role in slowing down traffic on I-70 coming back here towards Denver. So to see that the Hyperloop could be a possibility is great. It's great, and I think it'd be great mostly for freight. I'm, I, I wish that it would be uh, available for, let's say, from Chicago to St. Louis, to big city centers, Chicago, St. Louis, Kansas City, here, going out to the West Coast, because then you can move freight so much quicker and faster and more efficiently than you can now, and I think that would be even more transformic than uh, even moving people those big distances. It would. The problem is that you have a very strong union or coalition of trucking companies that do not want to see themselves go out of business. And so that to me is where you're going to see a big problem with any of these bids in the United States and why I actually think Hyperloop is going to wind up picking an overseas market to build this first uh, test Hyperloop. Because when I was looking over the list of the uh, 10 winners, uh, Colorado has the lowest population on the list with just under 5 million. All the others are much, much higher. The next lowest is the Florida line at 8.5 million, and they claim to reach 10 urban centers uh, here in Colorado. So I guess they're counting Cheyenne. Greeley is not really an urban center. Fort Collins not an urban center. Um, obviously, Denver is. I wouldn't say uh, maybe Colorado Springs. Pueblo is not an urban center, nor is Vail, uh, nor is the Denver Tech Center. It's part of Denver. So uh, I think that's a bit of a stretch. Um, and the bottom line here, basically, is if Colorado is chosen, I think it's going to be huge for the state. It's going to be great to see if it happens here. Now, I'm concerned that the state, because they're so whining about money so much that they don't have any money to build or maintain roads currently, uh, that they're where are they going to get the money and, and are, are they going to beg the 
legislature to give them money for the Hyperloop, and then what if, what if the, the legislature says, uh-uh, we're not going to do it, or it goes to the vote of the people, and the people say, uh-uh, we're not going to do it, and then we're kind of put into a hard place here when, because these P3 projects, you need some money to, to, to front part of this the, the, these projects. I agree, but I don't see how this project gets built anywhere without a massive private investment. And a private investment that's probably 80% of the total investment. I do think when the project's finally presented to the public to see if they can get the rubber stamp from, from the general public from the, for the state of Colorado, I can't see them making an ask of more than half a billion dollars without getting laughed at. Where are we going to get a half a billion dollars? I mean, they're yeah. already they're, they're freaked out about the billion and a half project on I-70. I agree with that. I'm just saying, how, if you if you get it out of the billions and into the hundreds of millions, I do think it's more palatable for people, and I think that there's a lot more ways to do creative bookkeeping to make it happen. Yeah, probably. So what's next for Colorado? The state is going to work for several months now to develop a feasibility study to figure out what the best route is. They uh, were saying in, in uh, obviously, the video, and, and I was listening to some other uh, commentary about this, that there are plenty of, uh, of open land um, spaces available to build the Hyperloop where, where the state could either commandeer the land, um, eminent domain kind of thing, or just outright purchase a bunch of land because there's a lot of open space between Cheyenne and here. Um, but there's still going to be some challenges of where they're going to put it, maybe over other rail tracks or something like that. But they're going to try to figure out what the best route, route is. And then how, where they're going to go in the mountains will be, an interesting idea because it, it for the most part it has to be a straight shot because i don't there can't be a lot of curves in this exactly. thing exactly because it, it being a, a what a virtual vacuum not a total vacuum but partial vacuum and then being on that magnetic uh, transportation deal it still needs a pretty straight shot right you don't have much of a choice i mean you have to go can't have a lot of curves there there unfortunately are a lot of curves in the mountains there maybe you can have some slight curves but and then i guess you could slow down the speed uh, but they're going to have to make some kind of a, a an official route map because right now it's like crayons on paper, and they're going to have to take that to the next level. And then the plan is going to go back to Hyperloop, and we'll see what happens. So there you go. Hyperloop. Coming here to Colorado, possibly. Maybe. It's pretty interesting to, to read some of this and, and see how far ahead we are uh, compared to all the other uh, uh, available uh, areas that they could put it. And yet still very early in the timeline. I mean, when you look at it, we're still... I mean, it's got to be at least five, ten years away from becoming anything close to a reality. Yeah, exactly. Well, it'll be. Uh, I'm going to follow this one pretty closely. And speaking of fast tracks, the state-owned China Aerospace Science and Technology Corporation has claimed it plans to develop the next generation of trains which can travel at speeds of 2,500 miles an hour. How is that even possible? Just as a reference, it's about 3,000 miles from Boston to L.A., okay? So that trip would take just over an hour on a proposed train that can go 2,500 miles an hour. Could you imagine going across the country in a, in a little over an hour? No, I can't imagine It's almost that. six hours right now in a plane over that same distance, maybe closer even to seven hours. So shaving that, but I, again, it's going to have to be a pretty straight shot because I don't think you can go 2,500 miles an hour and hit a curve. Um, the deputy general manager of this Chinese company said their scientists would be looking at developing the superfast trains of the future that could, quote, fly on the ground, unquote. They say it could go faster than the Hyperloop. Obviously, 2,500 is a lot faster than, what, 700. The Chinese corporation says they have accumulated technological know-how. I think that's their PC way to say stolen. I would agree with that. Anyway, they have this information that they found and they got that they have the capabilities in simulation and modeling and experimentation for a large-scale project, and they want to go through with this, and they think they have this world-class design capability to make it basically a supersonic aircraft on the ground, which is it's mind-blowing to me, I think. China already has the largest network of high-speed trains in the world, and it's obviously keen uh, to continue to improve their technology. Although the flying train idea may be a ways off from becoming a reality, Chinese scientists, they they did announce plans for an inner-city train that can travel at more than 600 miles an hour. That's clearly designed to compete with the Hyperloop, which uses air instead of wheels. And even though there's been some recent testing of the Hyperloop, seeing speeds of 200 miles an hour, there's no date yet announced for when the Hyperloop will be up and running officially, whether it's here in Colorado or anywhere around the world. The one in Las Vegas, that's where they've been testing it on that short track. Correct. 
Now, whether the train flies or not, there's no doubt that China is certainly going to be creating a new generation of trains that will go really, really fast. And there are places in the world where this technology isn't going to make sense. Like, let's say, the northeastern United States, uh, parts of the U.K., where those distances between the major towns isn't that far. See, China and the United States, especially uh, across country, has these huge land gaps between the major cities like out here in the West. And you can really think about it this way. The train wouldn't even have time to fully accelerate before it would have to slow down again on a route between, let's say, Washington, New York, Philly, Boston. It just wouldn't have the distance to do that. You have to wonder how fast the acceleration and deceleration is going to be to get to 2,500 miles an hour, but it's not going to be so fast that it's going to make you puke. Exactly. That G-force would be wicked. You know what I mean? It's like riding yeah. a roller coaster. So they're going to have to figure that out. So they need some distance to get up to that speed and then some distance to slow down from that speed. And, and w- w- I mean, I would think it would make you pretty ill if you're looking outside. Because I think the Hyperloop, you can't even look outside. I think it's all dark inside, and they would put images on screens i always have a problem with those 3d rides like a disney world or whatever i always had a i get more sick on that than on let's say a roller coaster that goes crazy what are they going to do project images of like happy places on the walls and make you think that you're on the beach when you're in reality moving 700 miles an hour from denver to vale well it'd be like uh that or or have images of uh, plane crashes or train crashes, or it'd be like watching airplane on they, an airplane. They would just put the movie Castaway on repeat. Yeah, but <laughs> I'd love to take a train, a, a ride on one of these high speed trains. I think it'd be super fun. The the ones that go in Japan or China, I mean, the current ones, those high speed ones that go a couple hundred miles an hour. I think that'd be that'd be a blast. I'd, I'd love to do that. I think we could expense driving you crazy. Does China? I don't see why not. <laughs> We put it on the company credit card? Yeah, sure. Why not? I mean, it's it's research. I mean, I've been on Amtrak. Not quite. I, I don't think that's quite uh, Hyperloop speed. It is not. No. It is absolutely not. I th- <laughs> did Amtrak, does that even go as fast as a car? I mean, it goes slightly faster, but it's no faster than just doing 70 on the highway. Yeah, I don't think you go faster than 70 on the Amtrak. But it was, uh, it was a fun ride nonetheless. But you get a chance to see the scenery going by, a nice relaxed trip. Um, I took the Amtrak. It was dark, man. I don't remember seeing any scenery when I rode the Amtrak. The only train that I've ever seen that actually was above ground and you got a good look at the scenery was in New Jersey. Nobody wants to look in New Jersey anyway. No, it, it, that's. <laughs> I have a. All right, here's the joke. I'll, I'm going to tell you the joke. Kiss a girl where it smells. Take her to New Jersey. <laughs> is that bad? That is bad. Bad joke. <laughs> that is bad. Well okay. done. Well, after that uh, precious joke, a uh, bus driver in Washington, D.C. has been suspended after a passenger's video shows him reading a newspaper while driving the bus full of passengers. Not an Onion article. No, it's not. This has actually happened in real life. The driver was placed on paid leave. I would like to get some paid leave uh, while they conduct the investigation. I mean, honestly, I'd, maybe I can go on 10 years of paid leave. That's really what I need. One of our anchors made a joke that if she won the lottery, she would no longer be showing up to work. And we got a very nasty note from a, a, uh, a viewer who said, well, then obviously this isn't a vocation. If I won the lottery, my life wouldn't change at all. And, I, I, you know, at that point you want to reach through the computer screen and slap the viewer and say, <laughs> are you serious right now? $133 million wouldn't change your life? Uh, exactly. Miles Hill was a passenger who posted a video on Twitter and he is the one who spotted what looked like a newspaper in the bus driver's hands, and it was. And at first he couldn't believe what he was seeing, so he turned to a friend and he says, is that bus driver really reading the newspaper? And she said, yeah, yeah, he definitely is. While the driver's name was unknown, the video did provide a clue into the source of the distraction. From a close-up of the 43-second video clip, he appeared to be concentrating on page 20, part of a Redskins season preview package. Apparently, he's into the Redskins. That's a waste of time. You should have learned from the last 20 years of Redskins futility. Uh, Reading the newspaper is encouraged, but not under any circumstance while driving. That's from a spokesperson for the bus service uh, in Washington, D.C. that says distracted driving violations can result in disciplinary measures up to and including termination. I have a feeling that is probably the next step in this story, the termination of the bus driver. He'll be looking for a new job, if not already. But he is well read. So he's got that going for him, right? Mm-hmm. All right, so here's a first in the country, and it's happening right here in Metro Denver, on the south side of Metro Denver. The city of Lone Tree, they have partnered with Uber to provide free door-to-door rides within their city limits. 
Yes, free Uber rides. But when you're picked up, you're not picked up in somebody's rando car. You're actually riding in one of their uh, 12-passenger shuttle buses. The riders still use the standard Uber app to book your ride, but you're picked up in one of their shuttle buses that they already own. It's driven by a professional driver. In addition, these shuttles are wheelchair accessible. They have bike racks. They're kid-friendly. And the city says the higher-capacity vehicles allow for ride-sharing on a more significant scale to eliminate vehicle trips and reduce, reduce congestion there in Lone Tree. I have a feeling that a lot of this is being spurred by the big uh, uh, Schwab building that's down there. Because the city really isn't that big to get around. It's it's not it, – their city center is pretty small. It will be expanding to the other side of I-25 fairly soon. But uh, I would not I would imagine a regular Uber ride would probably cost maybe 10 bucks to go around Lone Tree. Uh, the city of Lone Tree says this is their way to try to expand mobility options and provide a multimodal transportation network. They call it on-demand microtransit. They already had the free shuttle bus in in a circle route that would just circle around. And they would stop at designated stops around the city. And now they have this one, which instead will, instead of going around the city, they'll just go to you and take you to wherever you need to go, I guess. That's the future of bus transit, man. I mean, they right are, like, as you said, they already do that for a lot of uh, accessibility things, like with wheelchairs and things of that nature. There's no reason that that can't expand even further going forward, provided that it's still cost effective for the transit authorities. I'm not sure what Uber gets out of it. Uh, maybe they get a little added, maybe they get free advertising, maybe they get... A little bit of money, or I'm not sure what Uber is getting out of the whole deal. Yeah, um, the city is the one that's paying for the shuttles. The city is the one that hires the drivers. Uh, maybe the city's just able to use their Uber app as a, and maybe that saves them a ton of money instead of having using needing the software. And everybody's familiar and 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 comfortable with using the Uber app, right? Maybe that's what the connection is. Right. Um, Lone Tree is where they have a lot of businesses, and they have a lot of business people working down there. It, it, they have the Park Meadows. They call it the Park Meadows Retail Resort. It's not a mall. It's, it's a strip a, mall. It's a retail resort. Right? Is it a strip mall? No, it's a regular, it a regular mall. mall. Okay. No, it's a regular mall, but they call it a retail resort. Uh, they have the Sky Ridge Medical Center, the big deal down there. Uh, they, they have the huge new uh, Charles Schwab headquarters with like four or five huge buildings down there. It is a gorgeous campus, man. Yes. That made me want to work at Charles Schwab driving by that beauty. I could see some other small cities and communities maybe doing something like this, especially if they have an already free existing si- shuttle system. But the thing that Lone Tree has, they have all those huge businesses throwing all kinds of money into their uh, uh, tax base, and that's able to... To, uh, that's how they're able to subsidize this sort of stuff. So there you go. There you go. There you have it. Well, coming up, the perfect example of a stubborn guy who got into huge trouble because he wouldn't turn around. He wouldn't turn around. Albuquerque? He did not make the left at Albuquerque. That story and much, much more as the Driving You Crazy podcast continues. You're listening to the Driving You Crazy podcast with Jason Luber. The Denver 7 Morning Show is a great mix of kind of everything. Obviously, the breaking news that you need, the weather and the traffic as you wake up and get out the door. But then we like to have some fun, too. We actually have personalities, whether it's Jason Luber and Lisa. They're always getting on each other and whatnot. Dale and Mitch. And then even us reporters out in the field, we like to have fun from time to time. And then tell you the news that you need before you get out the door. Jason Grenauer, only on Denver 7. You know, if they're if they're a breaking news junkie and they like to see um, reality and watch a family on TV and not something boring that's going to put you to sleep, I would say tune in to Channel 7. I mean, we're the first ones on breaking news. Uh, we have a very accurate weather forecast. We have very good traffic information from you. Uh, we have good anchors that work well together, and by watching it and, and getting to know everybody on air, it, you feel like you're part of the family. Daryl Orr, only on Denver 7. Welcome back to the Driving You Crazy podcast. By the way, here is some island music, Joseph, as I reminisce about the visit from Moana for my six-year-old birthday party. This past weekend, I put a picture of me and Moana on my Instagram page, uh, Denver 7 Traffic, if you want to look at my Instagram. Uh, The kids had a blast. Moana was very good. She was, though, how do I put this? 
Um, she was developed like she was a 25-year-old island woman and not a 15-year-old island girl. Um, and you'll see from the picture, if you look at the picture, how she was developed. Uh, but other, other, other from that, uh, she was great. I, I don't think the kids minded uh, any of that. It Noticed. Didn't, bo- didn't bother them. She sang some songs. She did a dance or two. She entertained the kids for about an hour. A good time was had by all, uh, and not that all that's all that really matters. There you go. I'm I put up some. T- I got some tiki tor- torches, and I put up the tiki torches. That's the right way. My to sister-in-law use a tiki was all freaked out because she thought I was going to light a tree on fire, and that never happened. Um, so there you have it. Right on. Speaking of my sister-in-law, I could, uh, maybe next week I'll tell you the the great saga, the adventure I went on yesterday to go find some crackling oat bran around did, the city. Did you find it? That's the real oh question. yeah. Here, no, I have a whole. Maybe, yeah, I, I should maybe tell the story next time. Podcast number forty-five. We'll be there. Crackling the, oat bran. The crackling. This, this could be the crackling oat bran saga. It is. It's an interesting story. I didn't have to look long and hard to find pumpkin spice Cheerios. There's about 45 boxes of them at the local King Supers because nobody wants them. <laughs> yeah, but there's and if you go over to Trader Joe's, it's pumpkin everything. They have pumpkin pumpkin. And it's not even it's not even pumpkin. It's ginger and cinnamon and nutmeg. Like that's where all the flavor comes from. And I love ginger and cinnamon and nutmeg. I'm kind of, I'm not complaining. I'm just saying don't call it pumpkin spice, call it fall spice. Maybe we should have a writing campaign over there to FSL. FSL. <laughs> that doesn't go as well as the pumpkin spice does latte. Not. That's correct. Does not at all. The average human spends nearly 42 hours in traffic every year. And getting a Google Map traffic update before hitting the road is always a good idea. But have you ever wondered how Google tracks live traffic, Joseph? I get this question all the time. Exactly how do they know? Is it, it seems a little bit creepy to some. It's creepy. I mean, we're past the point of no return, right? Like, Google is at the point where they know that I went to Wendy's, even though I didn't tell them that I went to Wendy's, and they make sure that I get Wendy's ads when I search for things on Google and when I visit my Facebook page because they know how much I enjoy Wendy's. And then they want you to review and take pictures while you're in the Wendy's. It's not even just, like, ads for Wendy's. It's ads for the specific Wendy's off 6th and Sherman. Like, that, the specials that are happening at that one store because they know... They know how often I go there. And you know what's interesting is when you go to a restaurant, and then they'll pop up the restaurant menu. So you don't even have to look at the restaurant's menu. You can look at the menu on Google while you're sitting there and don't even have to wait to look at it on the uh, on uh, in your hand. It's true. Or when, I, I, when I'm watching the Green Bay Packers game and I Google what's the name of the linebacker and it just finishes for the Green Bay Packers, and I'm like, are you kidding me right now? <laughs> they know you all too well. They do. Well, here's how Google mines its travel time data. Now, according to Google, all smartphones that have the Google Maps open and location services turned on send small little bits of data to Google servers and this allows the google people to analyze how fast your car is moving now other popular gps mapping apps like like apple maps or Waze or nokia's here maps and mapquest they all offer traffic information but the advantage google has is just the sheer number of people who use it and the amount of data that it has available to it now thanks to google's intelligent algorithm they exclude vehicles like your postal trucks or your UPS trucks, that sort of thing, because they take make frequent stops, and obviously that would alter the traffic speed data and not make it register properly. So Google also takes data from telecom companies. So these telecom companies, they monitor user location data by a method they call trilaterally. Ugh, I'll never be able to get this word out. That is trilateration. Trilateration. I'm better with listening to things and then repeating <laughs> than actually speaking things on a general basis, uh, Joseph. That's quite all right. Well, anyway, they use the distance of users measured between two or three surrounding uh, telecom towers. And then they use that to analyze the speed and location of the user. So Google Maps also gets its data from the Waze app because Waze gets its information from users who report things like crashes and traffic jams, that sort of thing. So they also get information from local Department of Transportation by tapping into their road speed and flow sensors. So they're, they're tracking you via your phone. They're tracking you via the cell towers. They're tracking you via the Waze app if you're using that. And they're tracking you because they uh, uh, know that you're driving with the DOTs and, and how fast traffic is actually moving. Now, Google has built up a history over the last few years of what traffic is usually like on specific roads at specific times. That means it can predict how traffic is going to change over your drive. Just because there's traffic around, let's say, 60 miles ahead of you 
right now doesn't mean there's going to be traffic there when you arrive there in an hour. It's just not, it, maybe it's going to be different, maybe it's going to be heavier or worse, or maybe it's going to be all gone. And if there's no way around a slowdown, or you're on the fastest route, even if there is heavy traffic, Google will still tell you that you're going the best way. The minds behind the workings of Google traffic are this, is this company from, uh, it's called ZipDash. It's a traffic an, uh, an analyst, is that? No, I analysis. Analysis, goodness gracious. This is what happens when I don't get any sleep, Joseph. Proper diction advocate, Joseph Peters. <laughs> it's a traffic analysis company that Google bought in 2004. Google added ZipDash's technology to Google Maps and started providing live traffic updates. And you can still opt out of their GPS location services, so you're not tracked, but then you lose the ability to use their service. So it basically is a trade. Let us track you, and we'll let you have this traffic information for free. And if you're curious uh, where to go, I, I find it immensely useful when I report on slow traffic all around town and on the highways. It, it's it's super helpful to me all the time, especially in the mornings, because there could be some unique areas uh, that I, I'm not tracking all the time. But then all of a sudden, I'll see some red pop up, and then, pow, I'll, I'll make a call or, or hear from somebody. Uh, there's a crash right there or a stall or a whatever, a, a problem on that road. Trilateration, also very useful in uh, police work. This is how they catch basically every criminal these days. I don't know if you've watched an episode of the first 48 recently, but these, all, all these episodes. The first 48? Fo- yeah, it's about the first 48 hours of a police investigation, oh. right? And all of these episodes follow the same narrative arc. They spend the first 45 minutes setting up the crime and everything, and then the narrator will say something to the effect of, and then police ran the cell phone data. And they caught the criminal within minutes because these criminals are not smart enough to buy a burner phone. They just use their regular cell phone. <laughs> they text their friends. I kill the guy. They get on Facebook real quick. And that's how they are tracked now. My dad always said you have to be 10% smarter than what you're working with. So if you're 10% smarter than the criminal, you got a good shot. Well, there you have it, Joseph. There you have it. Listen Very to your nice. father, folks. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of Google Maps... I was reading a story about a guy in Arizona who was stranded for a couple of days in the desert with a broken down car, a half a water bottle, a rotten sandwich, two beers, and crackers after he said the Google Maps app let him down what he said was a boulder-filled road. He said he programmed the map to avoid highways, so he blames the map for taking him down steep and rocky side roads. Really? The app's fault? Because the app made you drive down those roads? First mistake was going to Arizona in the first place, buddy. He says his car broke down around 3 p.m. after he was leaking fluid from the shredded transmission that wouldn't budge. He, You know how hard you have to drive the car or how bad you have to hit something to do that to your car? I do. That was that was the old joke for my auto shop buddies. You know, if you do it, if you, if you do it hard enough, fast enough, etc., you're going to break something. He hiked for hours looking for cell service in the brutal Arizona heat, leaving notes on his SUV that explained his situation and gave his cell number, home address, and the direction he had walked. 48 hours later, so two days later, he was looking for help when he was found by a guy on a dirt bike. And was taken back to civilization. Now, the problem I had with this guy's story is that the GPS made him do it. Really? I've been on my own stupid driving adventures in my life. And at any point, this drive, he could have, if he wanted to, stop and turned around. Anytime before he popped a hole in his transmission. Or he, he going over some of the boulders. At that point, you say, all right, this is probably not a good idea. I'm going to go back from whence I came. He was driving a two-wheel drive Honda CRV, not a Jeep, not a big SUV, not a big uh, four-wheel drive, whatever. He admitted at times that the rocky path had him driving right next to a steep drop-off. I don't know. Maybe at that point you should, I don't know, turn around because you're not equipped to do this. Mm-hmm. He says he looked for a place to turn around, but once he found one, the CRV couldn't make it back up the steep road. So he kept driving, navigating around two and three foot deep ruts and stopping completely to get out and move basketball sized boulders. This guy was way over his head. Haven't we all done something where we're in a in an area, we're going and going, and then we get to a point where we think to ourselves, you know, I should have turned back a long time ago. Haven't you done that? Uh yes. Before this transmission went out, I'm sure that a CRV had the reverse gear working, right? 
Couldn't he have just, I mean, just turned her, just turned it into reverse and started trying to go backwards a little bit? I mean, obviously there wasn't much traffic on that road, so I doubt he was going to run into somebody as he reversed out of the bad road he was on. That's just my feeling on the whole thing. I'm glad he's fine. I'm glad he's okay. I'm glad he survived the whole mess. He sounded like he wasn't going to survive. He wasn't the survivalist type. He actually was was recording messages on his phone that he was going to die, and, and this is the love notes that he was sending back to his loved ones. If you find my phone and you find my body being chomped at by uh, some buzzards here in the in the Arizona desert. He was smart enough to not eat his rotten sandwich, which I give him credit for. He said he did not want to get food poisoning to put that on top of everything else he was going through. Yes. I respect that. E- even so, he was still not going to kind of compete with uh, Bear Grylls anytime soon to replace him as host of the survival show. But you can't blame the map for putting your foot on the gas pedal blame yourself for getting into the situation that that could have ended your life sir you can't blame your phone i've had to do that several times that, that's surprising isn't it right I, look i dip my toe in and then i realize that i'm way in over my head and and i and i go back that's that's my usual philosophy. I remember there was one time I was driving my little two-wheel drive pickup truck and I was over by Fall River Road up in the not too far from Idaho Springs and I see this this hill and I'm thinking, "All right, well, I could maybe make it up there, but it looks a little rough and it looks I, I just ha- I maybe I should just turn around and I did. I wanted to go up there real bad, but I thought better of it and so I turned around. Occasionally, I I ventured on and nearly killed myself. You know what? Actually, from most of those times that I nearly killed myself, uh, they were climbing some 14ers. Okay. Um, one, a bit over my head in some of those where I was coming down through this. Uh, it was like in July, and I'm coming down, and I go through this snow field where I'm actually up to my waist in snow. There were some other ones where I'm trying to climb down some of these uh, these uh, these rocky slopes, and I didn't have any ropes. and and Because I, I was coming down a way that I didn't go up. Right. And that's always a problem. Don't worry. You're not the only one, as we've learned this year, to... Not respect the dangers of forest teeners. No, they. Yeah, the, these are fourteen thousand foot mountains. I've I've done twelve of them, um, but I, my my knees can't take it anymore. It's really I could go up forever. Yes, yes. But coming back down, coming down is the worst, man. It's worse. it, it stretches out your legs in ways that you're not used to. I'm always sore, right? In my up, my leg. Yep. Lower, yep, yep. And my knees kept taking the pounding. Every there was one, time. The last time I did my twelfth one was Mount Princeton. And I, I swear, I was about three quarters of the way down. And I was sitting on a rock, and I, I, I was basically at the point that so somebody's going to have to come get me. I cannot walk any farther because my knees are hurting so badly. And it always reminds me that I need to do yoga to stretch my legs in that direction more often because that's all it is. I mean, it's a stretch that you're not used to. And anyway, long story short, going downhill sucks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> at least when you're walking downhill on a bike, maybe different. Yeah, call me a helicopter. Yeah, exactly. I, I loved doing it. It was great. It was great fun. But, yeah, I got into some situations where I was a little out of my uh, comfort zone. I'm still here to tell the tale, which is uh, only by the grace of God, but that's that's it. Uh, otherwise, I, I should probably be dead right now. Well, there's an old saying, Joseph, when you treat people like idiots, they'll behave like idiots. And there's a lot of truth in that saying. And it's the ethos of the philosophy that the late Hans Monderman, a Dutch traffic engineer who became famous for not what he added to road designs, but for what he removed including curbs, traffic signs, lights, and markings. His idea was that everyone on the road, drivers, cyclists, pedestrians, becomes more alert and therefore more cautious when they aren't being told what to do, when they're not quite sure who has the right of way or who's supposed to move or, or when, that's when traffic actually can flow a lot better. Monderman said that the trouble with traffic engineers is that when there's a problem with a road, they always try to add something. To me, it's much better to remove things. That's what he said. Now, Monderman began with the observation that when an electrical failure knocked out traffic lights, the result was improved traffic flow rather than congestion. As an experiment, he replaced the busiest traffic-lighted intersection in a city in the Netherlands that handles about 22,000 cars a day with a traffic circle an extended cycle path, and pedestrian area. In the two years following, the number of accidents plummeted to only two compared with 36 crashes in the four years before that. And traffic moves more briskly through that intersection now when all drivers know they must be alert and use their common sense while backups in the road rage associated with them have virtually disappeared. 
Moderman linked it to skaters in a crowded ice rink who managed successfully to tailor their movements to those of the other skaters. He also believes that an excess of signage led drivers to take their eyes off the road and actually contributed to making junctions less safe. Interesting. So Moderman's philosophy, popularly called shared space, has been implemented in cities around the world. It seems to be working. Instead of causing chaos and collisions, the red light removal scheme almost always results in improved sociability and traffic flow and fewer accidents in some cases. A study of centerline removal in Wiltshire, UK, for instance, found that people drove more safely without the markings and the number of accidents decreased by 35%. The key to the philosophy isn't mere anarchy, but rather an understanding of the behaviors that result from the implied context of a road within its community. One of these, if you ever get to see the video of an intersection, I believe it's in India, where it looks like it's total chaos, where there are cars and and buggies and motorcycles and scooters and pedestrians all trying to go through this intersection. It looks like it's total madness, but it actually flows well because there are no signals, no signs, no curbs, no line markings. People just have to fend for themselves and get through this interchange. Now, in Little Old Vermont, they've taken this sort of philosophy and applied it to actually deconstructing roads themselves. So instead of uh, paved roads, in some areas where the paved roads aren't being used as much, they've just taken out the pavement altogether and now they're just dirt roads. And I'm a big fan of this too because it does slow down traffic and it sort of saves the environment at the same time. Now in the mid-1980s, Monderman, then a regional safety inspector, was sent to a small village in the Netherlands to see what could be done about vehicle speeds. Weeks earlier, a car had fatally struck two kids there. Now, while conventional options at the time might have included speed bumps or more signage, both known in the industry as traffic calming devices, Monderman ultimately suggested making the town more village-like. So signs were removed, curbs were torn out, and the asphalt replaced with red brick paving with two gray gutters on either side that were slightly curved but usable by cars. As Monderman noted, the, the road looked only about five meters wide but had all the possibilities of six. The results were striking. Without bumps or flashing warning signs, drivers slowed down so much that Moderman's radar gun couldn't even register their speeds. Rather than clarity and segregation, he had created confusion and ambiguity. Unsure of what space belongs to them, drivers became more accommodating. Rather than give drivers a simple behavioral mandate, say a speed limit sign or a speed bump, he had, through a new road design, subtly suggested the proper course of action. Shared space has been, in effect, the default traffic mode in parts of the world where standardized traffic systems were never implemented. There are examples of it all over the world. The thing about the signals being removed is that the driver is no longer being given a green light. Some cities have already begun to experiment with it, like Seattle's Bell Park. Implementing these ideas on a larger scale could require a fundamental shift in the way we think about cities and the role individuals play in them. I'm not sure if Americans are, are quite ready for all this yet. Well, I certainly don't think Denver's ready for it, but you look at a place, and I keep coming back to this example when we have these conversations, look at Idaho Springs' Main Street, and look at how accommodating drivers are there. And that's a very small sample size, but you would think that the lessons that you learn from a town like that can be applied on a much broader scale. Because you're basically transferring the power and responsibility from the state to the individual and the community. And for those wanting to, uh, let's say, follow in Monderman's st- footsteps, consider this following guide. Remove signs. The architecture of the road, not the signs and signals, dictate traffic flow. Install art. The height of the fountain indicates how congested the intersection is. Share the spotlight. Lights illuminate not only the roadbed, but also the pedestrian areas. Do it in the road. Cafes extend to the edge of the street, further emphasizing the idea of shared space. And anything that encroaches on you is going to make you slow down. See eye to eye. Right of way is negotiated by human interaction rather than commonly ignored signs. How often do we ignore all the signs? Just take a look. Just right now, take a look at all the signs that are out there on the road. They are everywhere. And because they're everywhere, you just ignore them anyway. Eliminate curbs. Instead of raised curbs, sidewalks are denoted by texture and color. And watching how traffic flows through one of these intersections seems like total chaos and orderly all at the same time. It's really remarkable what people will do when they have to figure things out on the fly. 
I, I, I would like to try this maybe at uh, Colfax and Broadway downtown, maybe Colorado and Colfax over there in East Denver at some of our busiest intersections and see how it works out. Federal and Alameda, where, yeah. where there's so many pedestrians that are getting killed and getting hit over there on that uh, west side of town. Well, they got to do something about Federal. They, they, just something needs to be done about Federal. And I think Colfax, Colfax 14th, right around Civic Center Park, you're already seeing some examples of this just because of the way that road curves around Civic Center Park. That causes that natu- natural sort of traffic calming that we're talking about here. It sure would be interesting to see because American drivers are different than all other drivers in the world. We, we feel, I think, we feel more entitled to our space on the roads and we feel more entitled to be able to do what we want on the roads and i'm not sure if the shared space concept would work as well here as it does in europe where it's a different mindset just of the people not necessarily of the people who drive but everybody in general is a little bit different in europe than, than they are here it takes some getting used to but i mean i think it's worth it for the long-term benefits because i have plans and uh to redesign some of the streets in castle pines because i think the traffic issues there are getting uh, ridiculously out of control and they've been talking about it there at city council so uh, i i mean i I, w- I have an idea to bring in some traffic circles and some other devices like that and make it feel a little bit more like this design I have just rough, rough sketches right now, and, and I'm going to hopefully be able to present it to city council before they usher me out of their meetings. <laughs> Violently usher you. <laughs> well, I, I'm hoping for a less violent, you know, uh, throw out of the meetings, but uh, you never know. Because my, my, really, my goal is just to make traffic slower and, and to be able to get around Castle Pines a little bit easier. You're the guru, man. We'll see how it works. Anyway, there you go. That's how you That's how you fix traffic, Joseph. I just figured out the whole thing right there. Beautiful. Well done, sir. Well done. Yeah, our work here is done. We can just end the podcast now. <laughs> Forever? No, not just until next week. Forever, and just let Jason go on to his next career as a uh, city planner. City planner? City planner. Or parking attendant? <laughs> Whichever one pays better. <laughs> Uh, okay, uh, that, that's for this podcast. Thanks again for being here. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Jason Lipper, the traffic guy. I'm vocabulary advocate Joseph Peters. <laughs> Be safe. And as always, happy motoring. Happy motoring.